The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oftentimes you'll find that around the world, like political advisors do travel and do work for people. I mean, I think they also keep a track. Like they, it's not just Samor who knows, but like his political advisors are likely the type of people who are trained to know this is how we, you know, stay on message, that we make sure we're in the conversation, we're in the public debate so that all of the attention is trained on us. And when he does that, it's not just ensuring that he's getting media attention. It's also ensuring that all the other potential candidates are then being put in the position where they have to respond to things he's said and done. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that was 2015 and 2016. That was Trump. And even if he wasn't necessarily taken seriously in the media, as I don't think Trump was, at least initially, he you know, eventually was high up in the polls and continued to do well and ultimately came out as the candidate. I think the French press do take Zamora more seriously, but I don't think that that's necessarily translated into them covering him any differently. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, October 29th. 2021. There's a presidential election coming up in France in April of 2022. And in a surprise to many, in recent polls, the occupant of second place behind the incumbent president is a man who's never run for office before. His name is Eric Zemmour. He's a veteran journalist, a provocateur, and a virulent Islamophobe. I sat down with Yasmin Serhan, a staff writer at The Atlantic, to talk about Zemmour's rise. Who is he? How did he come to be so popular? Is he even going to run for president? What about all that's happened so far in France has shades of Donald Trump? It's a Lawfare podcast, October 29th. Who is Eric Zemmour? So I think the best place to start might just be, who is this person? That's a great question. Who is Eric Zemmour? So basically... Uh, Zamor is a far-right pundit. He's a journalist, he's a television host, and he's been around in France for a while. This is not someone who's kind of just come onto the political scene, so to speak, um, an outsider that no one's heard of. You know, when I was doing my reporting for this piece, I was kind of reading back on coverage of him, and I found a profile of him in the New York Times in 2019, actually. So even then, he was kind of, you know, very much seen as this sort of kind of radical thinker, um, this political commentator. And and he is, you know, in a lot of ways, very much of the the French establishment. He was born to a Jewish family from Algeria. 
I, I don't want to say that they immigrated to France, so to speak, after the War of Independence in Algeria, because under the laws that were in place during the French this colonization of Algeria, um, all Jews in the country were granted French citizenship. So they, so they, so they simply moved. And he grew up in the suburbs of Paris. And he went to Sciences Po, which um, I think is as many of your listeners will probably know, one of the training grounds of the the French elite and of the political class. And after graduating from Sciences Po, he ended up becoming a journalist. And he's worked for mainstream establishments like Le Figaro, which is um, the country's center-right paper of record. But he's also worked for for a slew of other outlets. Um, CNews is a, a prominent one that comes up quite frequently. It's France's answer to Fox News. So yeah, he's he's a commentator. He's a writer. He's written biographies of former French presidents. He's written his own books. Um, the French Suicide is is probably one of his most prominent ones, but he's also promoting his most recent book, which is called France Has Not Yet Said Its Last Word. And what's actually funny, he did admit in an interview with the New York Times, a more recent one, that the, the cover of the book is um, basically him in front of a French flag looking all presidential. And he told the New York Times that he apparently modeled that after Trump's Great Again, which is a very similar cover of Trump in front of the American flag. Both books published ahead of um, major elections. So that's a bit about Zamora. I mean, he's 63 years old. He's always been kind of a radical figure. And, you know, he's he has a lot of contentious views when it comes to kind of all the classic sort of populist things that we think of immigration, Islam, certainly, even French history and kind of revisionist history, the how kind the Vichy government was to Jews during the Second World War, things like that. But this is, I think, you know, the perhaps the first time that he's been seen as sort of a potential politician or a kind of a yeah a viable contender to to take on the establishment from the far right which you know for for a long time has been the space dominated by Marine Le Pen so anyway that's this kind of a very um long-winded way of saying that Zamor is effectively a very familiar face in France but he's becoming even more familiar now that people see him as a potential uh, viable contender for the French presidency and indeed you're seeing in the international press the reason we're talking about him right now is that people are learning more and more about him even beyond France. And so has he declared his candidacy for president yet? He has not. And, and it's unclear why. I mean, I it's my understanding that one of the things that you need in order to declare your candidacy for the French presidency is 500 signatures from mayors across the country. It is not at all clear to me that he has those yet. No one I spoke to is under any illusions that he isn't going to declare his candidacy. And I would imagine if Marine Le Pen can get those signatures, then I can't imagine that Eric Zamor would have any trouble on his end. But yeah, you know, he seems, I think he's created quite a lot of intrigue, the sort of, you know, will he, won't he, when will he declare his candidacy? Um, in, in comments to the press, he's basically said that, you know, when I want to be a candidate, I'll say so. And until then, I'm just considering it. But if you watch the way he, you know, is going around the country, the way he's speaking to these, you know, big crowds, even the way he kind of just, yeah, like kind of promotes himself on Twitter. um, This is very much a man that looks like he's just priming himself for an election campaign. And give us a sense of how popular he is. I took a look at the polling data and I have to say I was very, very surprised at just how popular this guy is relative to the other candidates. Yeah. So, I mean, the polling, especially recent polling in recent weeks have shown him 
with a lot more support than I, I think we perhaps would have expected, certainly earlier this year. You know, I think it's worth mentioning just at the top that we're still six months away from a French election. Now, in a U.S. context, that's not a lot of time. But um, in a French contest, and indeed, I think in most other countries, that is still a long ways away. I mean, this campaign, I should say, has has really scarcely begun. But, you know, the polls are still very telling. Um, recent polls shows a more um, attracting anywhere between 16 and 17 percent of the vote. Now, on the grand scheme of things, that probably doesn't sound like a lot. But, you know, the French system is a little different from the American one in that typically, for starters, there are more parties, there are more candidates. Um, And typically what happens is you'll have all these candidates compete against each other in the first round of voting. And after that vote, the number of candidates will whittle down to the top two who will then go on to the runoff. I think what's significant about the fact that Zamor is attracting anywhere between, say, 16, 17% of the vote is that in, in those polls that show him that high, he's second really only to Macron, who seems to be leading in the first round polling with 24 to 28%. Now, I, I don't want to kind of misrepresent Zamor's popularity in all the polls that I've seen so far in a second round vote. Macron is seen to win handsomely against Zamora. But I think it's still telling that, you know, this would be yet another presidential election in France where we see a candidate like Macron going up against a far right candidate. Now, in the past, you know, as was the case with Marine Le Pen in 2017, she was soundly defeated in the second round, very much seen as kind of a repudiation of the far right politics. You know, a lot of people I spoke to in France about this have always talked about how their system in this way has more protections against someone from the far right emerging and, and getting power. And you know what, that, to, to a certain extent, that might very well be true. Um, and I don't think anyone, at least at this stage, is really talking about Zamor as though he were a a president in waiting. I, I certainly don't think he's garnered that much support. And in a lot of ways, in fact, I think, you know, part of the concern that comes around all the coverage of him is that you would think, based on how many headlines there are, not just in the French press, but also in the international press, you would really think that Zamor actually had a shot at this. And I, I think that the frustration that I certainly heard from some French journalists who are cognizant of, of the ways in which, you know, them and their colleagues are really sort of focusing on him is that, you know, he doesn't exactly represent the views of the majority in France, and yet he's being assigned the majority of the coverage, the majority of the attention relative to other potential candidates, of course. Yeah, I want to unpack all of that. But first, one thing I'm curious about is who are the demographics of people that have been most inclined to support him? I know from the Le Pen experience, there are certain cohorts of people within the country who have a much higher tendency to support her and to support that party. Is is the same thing sort of playing out with Zemmour, where there's a relatively consistent group of people who are his his stalwarts? That's a really good question. I I think what we can say definitively is that Zamor appears to be attracting the sort of traditional voters of Le Pen. You know, what we're seeing is that Zamor clearly appears to be threatening the sort of traditional national, what was formerly known as the National Front, now the National Rally supporters, the supporters of Marine Le Pen's party. And I think part of that comes down to the fact that over the last few years, since the 2017 election, Marine Le Pen has been on this quest to 
detoxify both the brand of her party, but also her brand. You know, her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, was kind of notorious, the founder of the party, unapologetically far-right, anti-immigrant, at times anti-Semitic, you know, just homophobic. Like, you know, the, the list goes on. This is, this is a man who had, I think, what you could probably describe kind of generates very incendiary views. And I think Le Pen was very cognizant of the fact that if she were to get anywhere close to power and if her party were to be taken seriously, that they would need to moderate the brand. I think this is why we saw the name change to the national rally. And that's also why we've seen Marine Le Pen try to soften some of the party's more hardline rhetoric. She holds the same views vis-a-vis immigration, vis-a-vis European Union membership, all those things, but she she will shy away from saying things that could be seen as a religious or racial provocation, at least in the eyes of the law. And I think the difference is that Zamor does not. Zamor is more than happy to kind of say what he thinks, even if it's kind of seen as, as hateful, denigrating Arabs, immigrants, Muslims. One of the things that I think has been touched on both in my piece, but I think in a lot of the pieces that we've seen emerge about him in in recent weeks is that he is a proponent of the great replacement kind of white nationalist uh, conspiracy theory, this notion that, you know, the indigenous sort of white populations of Europe are actively being replaced by immigrants predominantly from North Africa and the Middle East. You know, basically what I mean to say is that whereas Le Pen is trying to moderate her image, Zamora is doing the opposite. And I think if you're a supporter of Le Pen who feels like she's going too far or she's kind of, you know, sacrificing on the party's views and its values um, in order to be more widely accepted by the rest of the country, then Zamora is potentially, you know, an attractive alternative. Yeah, maybe flesh out a bit more. What are his hobby horses? You mentioned his sort of fixation with Islam and France, but I'm curious to have you talk a bit more about what are the things that he just keeps coming back to over and over again? Yeah, I mean, he he has quite a few of them. I mean, I think one that was raised quite a lot in, in recent weeks because it sort of became a news item of its own was his insistence that France should ban foreign names foreign names, for example, like Muhammad. Uh, but he doesn't just stick to Arab names. He also said, you know, kind of foreign or Anglo names like Jordan or Kevin should also be banned. And, and he believes that basically there should be a list of sort of French Christian names. And and this has been a hobby horse of his for a while, actually. Um, you know, it was covered as though it were a recent thing. And I'm sure he's kind of made it an issue on his, say, quote unquote, quote, campaign, because he, as we've established, hasn't formally announced his candidacy. But, you know, looking back, this has actually been an issue of his for a while now. Um, you know, I I found um, stories about how he had uh, basically called out a government minister and criticized the choice of her daughter's name because it wasn't considered a French name. Um, he's called out his, his fellow journalists, uh, colleagues, one who I believe had a Senegalese name and basically told her that her name was an insult to France. So he's very much committed to this notion of of being proud to be French and, and being of French culture and, and to protect that and effectively not to have anyone in the country who, who would be seen as sort of um, a challenge to that. And, and I think that's kind of part of the reason that he is also a vocal opponent of immigration. You know, he's opposed to this notion of immigrants arriving to the country and not being fully French. 
and and also i mean of course another issue is is laicite or, or secularism in france and this notion of you know what is appropriate when it comes to um you know wearing religious symbols um this has always been a pretty hot button issue in france i i say hot button in france but perhaps more from an international perspective i think especially coming from the us it's probably hard to imagine that a country would sort of dictate what religious symbols you wear be it a cross or a kippah or a hijab um, or a headscarf but this is, you know, another issue, and it's it's long been an issue in France. But Zamor very much appears to um, fall on sort of the side of these symbols should not be allowed. And indeed, he was filmed basically debating with a with a French Muslim woman who, um, you know, I, I think had, if I'm remembering the clip correctly, had had basically dared him. She said, "I'll take off my hijab if you take off your tie." And he he took it off and was basically goading her to do the same and implying that she wasn't free. So, I mean, in in many ways, a lot of his hobby horses are a lot of kind of you know the sort of far right to right wing issues that that have come up with in France in the past, be it around French identity, French memory, immigration, Islam. I, I think he's also critical of kind of global institutions like like the European Union and NATO. These are kind of other sort of classic far right populist talking points. But, you know, I think given the fact that he's able to sort of dominate or appears to be dominating at least the conversation in France with these issues at a time when we're, you know, facing a global pandemic still when we're, you know, when, when world leaders are about to gather in Glasgow to talk about climate change and, and, you know, how to address the climate crisis. It really does feel like we're arguing or the, or the French public are kind of being forced to reckon with issues that, you know, which isn't to say that they're not important. I mean, obviously, issues like immigration are always going to be kind of, you know, I, I think hot button political issues. But I certainly don't necessarily think that they're the priority um, or certainly haven't been for the last year. So it, it's just interesting to me to see how he's managed to steer the conversation in such a way that, you know, you have France debating these issues that, frankly, they were probably debating in the last election. Yeah. And, and so one of the premises of your piece in The Atlantic is he's doing these things, but he's also doing them in a way that maximizes the amount of attention he gets in a very sort of quasi-Trumpian way, right? He does, he won't just say something, he'll say it in the most provocative, most public, most stunt-like way possible. Talk a bit about what his, you know, maybe implicit strategy is there and how that sort of inflected media coverage of, of what he's doing. Yeah, I don't want to pretend to know what his strategy is. I did reach out to Zamora's team for this piece um, and unfortunately wasn't able to, to speak with him about this before publication. But yeah, I mean, all the signs kind of point to someone who is very media savvy and who knows how to basically keep the attention trained on him. And I don't think this is new. In fact, this was a line from that profile I mentioned that I found of him from a few years ago. Um, it was basically something along the lines of, you know, this is a guy who, who knows how to ensure that everyone's talking about him all the time. And so I think Zamor is well trained in this. And, and I think part of the reason comes from the fact that, you know, he's he was a journalist, a political commentator and journalist for many decades. So, you know, you would think that he would have come away um, from that from that career with with, you know, an idea of, of how to maintain and attract press attention. And he has. And, and yeah, exactly. As you said, you know, I think he, he knows how to say things that outrage, you know, I think if we've learned any lessons from Trump, and I'm sure Zamora has learned them too. It's that 
you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to have all the facts. You don't have to have the most convincing argument. You just have to be the one who says the most outrageous things in order to get attention. And and why wouldn't you write? Because you're someone who's running for the presidency. You're someone who's seen as this potential contender, but you're saying these incendiary things. And, and I think the the impulse of journalists, and I think this was the case in the US too, is that, you know, that's newsworthy that like, you know, we, you know, it's kind of that, that sort of tired cliche of like, you know, we don't cover the planes that land, you know, this is something that's out of the ordinary. It's unusual. So naturally we're going to have our attention trained on that. And I think Zamora knows that. And that's why he, you know, attends an arms fair in Paris and points the rifle at journalists, however, jokingly and tells them to back off. You know, I don't think he does things like that without knowing that they're going to get a reaction. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be a good reaction. Certainly, the reaction to that clip, which was, I'm referencing something that I believe happened last week, that that wasn't good. I mean, even a government minister, if I'm not mistaken, had basically tweeted out condemning him, you know, even in jest, sort of seemingly threatening journalists. And that was a great moment for him to basically clap back and, and quote tweet her and say that you don't have a sense of humor. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that was more or less the the sentiment, uh, this notion that like you're, you're too uptight, you think, take things too seriously. And I mean, something that has come up in my reporting and, and I, I something that I you know, would be curious to know more about because um, I, I don't know who's advising him, of course. But, you know, oftentimes you'll find that around the world, like political advisors <laughs> do travel and do work for people. I mean, I think they also keep a track like they it's not just some more who knows, but like his political advisors are likely the type of people who are trained to know this is how we, you know, stay on message, that we make sure we're in the conversation, we're in the public debate, so that all of the attention is trained on us. And when he does that, it's not just ensuring that he's getting media attention, it's also ensuring that all the other potential candidates are then being put in the position where they have to respond to things he's said and done. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that was 2015 and 2016. That was Trump. And even if he wasn't necessarily taken seriously in the media, as I don't think Trump was, at least initially, he you know, eventually was high up in the polls and continued to do well and ultimately came out as the candidate. I think the French press do take Zamora more seriously, but I don't think that that's necessarily translated into them covering him any differently. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? 
Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up 
and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so do you have a sense that his his game plan here is working, right? Is he succeeding in monopolizing the conversation, shifting its terms, getting as much attention, all that stuff? I mean, we're talking about him, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're yeah. talking about him yeah. right now and we're we're not in France. Obviously, his focus is France, but yeah, I think he, he is being successful. I mean, look, if his even if he doesn't declare his candidacy, and I don't think for a moment and I say this purely because everyone I spoke to for this piece doesn't seem to doubt for a moment that he that he won't. You know, I, I think he has at the very least ensured that media and press attention is trained on him, that he is a present part of the public debate. And, and you know, even if that just means he sells more books, um, that he's succeeding in that. And, you know, these things are all interrelated. You know, I don't envy the French press because... I do think that they are faced with a pretty significant challenge. I mean, on the one hand, you have this pretty outlandish, like very loud sort of radical potential candidate for your country's presidency who is saying all sorts of things that's kind of demanding your attention. But on the other hand, if you don't cover him or you try to kind of ignore him, then are you failing in your journalistic duty to cover a viable contender for the presidency? And I say viable, not because, you know, I I have a crystal ball and I know that he's going to make it to the second round, but that's what the polls are telling us. Polls are suggesting to us that he's viable. Um, And the reason that I I say these are all interrelated, because I think that, you know, it all kind of, I think, works out in his favor in the sense that, you know, journalists may look to the polls and be like, that's the reason we need to cover him because he's so high in the polls. It would be a dereliction of our, of our duty if we didn't. But by that same token, the more he's covered, the more he's discussed, the more he's present in the public debate, the more likely, I think at least, he's likely to be mentioned in polls. Because if you think six months out to any election, Frankly, at this point in time, this is when the wider public are just learning about who these candidates are. Some of them may not know very much about Eric Zemmour or indeed Michel Barnier. I mean, we know him really well because he was the Brexit negotiator, but he hasn't had as high a profile in France. And Hidalgo, obviously, being the mayor of Paris, she's kind of, you know, has name recognition. But frankly, when you're getting polled and asking, like, you know, who who do you think is, is the candidate you're going to support? Who do you like? You're going to think of names you know. And I mean, in France, at least, a name that I think it's safe to say a lot of people know now because he's seemingly everywhere and an inescapable presence is Eric Zemmour. 
you had some interesting details in, in the piece about the way, sort of the internal discussions in French press about how to handle him, right? Like we're talking about it here, but it seems like there's at least some conversation about how to deal with this. Talk a bit about that. What's the what's your sense of how these papers are, are approaching and, and you know, newscasters in general are approaching this problem? Yeah, I, I think there is some debate. I mean, I've certainly, I've come across some pieces in sort of the French media, um, particularly sort of media, media watchdogs about their coverage of Zamor and, you know, how they approach it. I spoke to some journalists who have been tracking how many mentions Zamor has gotten in the press and how much airtime he's gotten in the press. So I think there is an awareness at least among these people who are interested in it, that he is getting a disproportionate level of coverage, not just as someone who hasn't declared his candidacy, but just more generally compared to some of those other names I've mentioned, Anne Hidalgo, Michelle Barnier, even even indeed Le Pen. Um, you know, uh, the, I spoke to this one independent journalist who's been tracking the, the broadcast times. And for the month of September, I think he estimated that Zamor got around 11 hours. Le Pen got, I think, just over one. So that kind of tells you, you know, how much the interest and focus has shifted. As for what those conversations look like, I mean, I can only really speak from the conversations I've had, but, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to sort of trying to determine how do we cover someone who's not yet a candidate, but who we know is going to become a candidate and sort of what responsibility do we have to pay attention to what he's saying and how much attention is too much attention I'll, I'll turn back to the example about the names and the banning of, of foreign names in France. Some publications, both in France and internationally, covered that story widely. One senior editor for a French paper that I spoke with, and you know, just doing my own cursory research, there were a couple of others. Some of them di- didn't cover it. And, and the reason this particular editor told me they didn't cover it is because it wasn't new because these are comments that he's expressed in the past. And to, to quote the editor, they were frankly ridiculous. They, they knew that this wasn't, at least from their, like what they gauged, not really a, a critical issue that they felt their readers needed to know. And, and I think, again, if you're thinking about this against the backdrop of the idea that we have six months left until the election, and that this is the time when the public are trying to learn about all the candidates and what they stand for, I think then, you know, journalists kind of need to assess, okay, what is our responsibility here? And, you know, what what information do they need to know? Do we need to dedicate, like, you know, space and, and broadcast hours to an argument that he's made for years and that were widely covered at the time? So I think that's kind of the debate. But, you know, it's an ongoing debate, I think. And, and I, that's part of the reason I wanted to write this piece. I you know, I'm not in the French media, so I'm not inclined to 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 kind of, you know, overly criticize. I'm cognizant that the, the U.S. press has made their own mistakes, some of which they haven't learned from with regard to, to Trump and sort of more extreme politicians in Congress and elsewhere. But, you know, I, I'd hope that at least by starting this conversation now, or at least kind of helping start this conversation then hopefully, you know, French journalists can kind of look and be like, okay, what were the lessons that American journalists missed or have learned um, since that time? And in what ways are we repeating them? How can we responsibly cover Zamor without doing his job for him? So one person we've mentioned a bunch of times and you talked a bit about earlier is Marine Le Pen, who used to be sort of the, the torchbearer of the far right, was the person who made it to the final election tour the last time around. 
talk about the impact of all this on her, right? Like, I think the expectation, at least as far as I understood it, was that she would be sort of the the predominant far right candidate. That she, you know, had this date with destiny, perhaps with with the incumbent president. What has the rise of Zamora done for her? So, I think what it's done, at least at this early stage, is kind of threatened her position, as you've just laid out, as kind of being the far right ring bearer. You know, when when people think far right in France, (laughs) her her family name is, is kind of almost become synonymous with that, you know, both through her tenure and her father's and indeed even her nieces, Marion Maréchal Le Pen, who's taken a step back from French politics, but who I think people still kind of think of as, you know, a potential future party leader someone who I I think is probably less committed to the sort of detoxification that that her aunt has set out on potentially. But yeah, I mean, so I think Zamor poses a threat because ultimately if she were the only option in town, then I think she has more room to try to do that detoxification effort whilst also keeping her you know, traditional base of supporters, because there's nothing further to the right of her. However, with Zamora entering the scene, there is suddenly an alternative that is, frankly, you know, probably close to as well known, if not just as well known as she is, who has a following, and who crucially is not concerned with detoxifying his image or, you know, trying to make himself more palatable. Um, you know, there's been a lot of, of, of talk and analysis about how Zamora's end goal is to kind of marry the far right and the kind of right in France. And that very well may be the case. It could very much be the case that he has or ends up having supporters who are, you know, potentially Republican supporters and, you know, and then maybe some who, who were, you know, traditionally Le Pen voters. That's very possible. And I, and I think the, the risk for Le Pen is that all of, you know, her detoxification efforts end up being for nothing because Zamora has come to the scene and has kind of just taken her thunder. And, and I think in part, in fairness to Le Pen, she is not helped by the fact that she, we've been here with her before, you know, she made it to the second round that was a pretty big deal. She was resoundingly defeated in the second round. You know, I remember covering the French election for the Atlantic at that time. You know, that was very much seen as France's kind of, you know, after Brexit, after Trump, this was France's opportunity to kind of, you know, outrightly reject this sort of populist nationalist emergence in their country. So she's been here. People know her. And I think people may potentially think that, well, she had her chance and she was unsuccessful. So there's this new guy in town, and he might be more successful. So why don't we support him? And if you're a Le Pen voter who isn't happy with the national rallies, you know, literal name change and, you know, attempts to kind of be more palatable, then he might seem like, you know, perhaps the the person to to get behind next year. And is it the case that the overall number of people, this is hard to say for sure, but the overall number of people in France who are inclined to vote for a far-right candidate is more or less stable, and they've just shifted predominantly from her to him? Or is it the case that, for whatever reason, it, it's a ever-broadening group of people, and, and you know he's just siphoning off more of the newcomers? It's a good question, and, and I'm, not, I'm not totally sure. I'm not sure if, if the polling this far out 
really tells us that much. I mean, I think certainly that there are people who are National Front slash National Rally voters who who may have been voting for Le Pen for quite some time. You know, she's she's been a a fairly stable presence for for many years. Her her party, you know, it's it's even if she has never been able to hold national office, you know, her her party are are still an established presence, you know, in in France at sort of local levels. So, you know, in that respect, I, I think she does have a base of support. Now, how loyal that base is, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. And, you know, it's it's worth remembering, too, that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that there was another outsider who, well, quote unquote outsider, I think you kind of debate whether he was a complete outsider who who came and disrupted France's political um, scene. And, and that was Emmanuel Macron himself. Like, remember that, you know, yes, he, he did serve in Francois Hollande's government, but, you know, he kind of came out and formed his own, I want to say party, but remember, En Marche was a movement. So he formed his own movement and kind of came out of nowhere. And he was the sort of centrist candidate. You know, he was able to do that and clearly was able to attract voters from Les Republicains from the Socialists, like, you know, he was was clearly able to, to attract French voters from other parties. That was the way he got here. So, you know, I, I think it really is a question of sort of French party loyalty and, and how much, you know, how fickle those identities can be. But yeah, at the moment, I don't know. It's a really good question. And I think that's something that will certainly Le Pen will be watching. But but I think, you know, I imagine journalists like myself will, will want to be watching closely, too. So one sort of lawfare specific question and then one general question before we wrap up. So about a year ago, I can't remember the exact date, maybe it was a little bit longer than that, there was the execution, decapitation of a French school teacher, right, on mm. the streets of a suburb outside of Paris. And it it garnered a lot, a lot of international attention, maybe almost more so for the reaction as as opposed to the actual event itself. And bracketing the discussion of whether that was the right way to to handle what happened, it did spark this huge debate both, it seems like, in France, but also among U.S. journalists about France, about the place of laicite, the state secularism that you talked about before. And it, it certainly seemed to have some pretty significant impact on French politics. Do you think it's at all fair to attribute the rise of Zemmour to, in any part, to after effects of that? Or, or is that sort of just one data point in a larger constellation of things? I mean, certainly the the killing and, and beheading of Samuel Paty was um was horrific. Um, and I think that there's the reason it resonated wasn't just because obviously the, the, the murder of, of a teacher just doing his job was just heinous. But I think the manner, of course, in which he was killed was, was particularly gruesome and, and upsetting. I, I don't want to draw too many parallels to it. I mean, it could it have been a factor maybe? I mean, I think that's probably um, something that uh, maybe some of my French colleagues would be more well-placed to answer. I, I feel like being here in Britain, it's it's kind of hard to gauge from afar the, the impact that that's had on sort of the, the French political conscience. But certainly, you know, I think the fact that that happened so recently and the fact that candidates, potential candidates like Zamor are, are very much focused on sort of the Islamist threat and, you know, the, the, the way in which being fr- like French identity and kind of cohesion, like an immigrants sort of, you know, being part of the country and, you know, all these other themes that he's kind of, you know, he's sort of made his pet issues. I, I think that the fact that he can kind of just point to that and say, see, this is an issue we need to be talking about right now. This is a matter of, 
you know, uh, French security and what it means to be French and laicite and all those other things. I mean, I, I could see how he, he might try to, to utilize that to, to talk about these issues. But as for whether that is, is the reason behind his support, I mean, you know, the, I think what, and I've said this a couple of times and I'll just keep reiterating it, like we're still so far out. I mean, he, he's emerged and, and I have no doubt that we will probably end up talking about him for a long time because I'm not terribly convinced that, you know, he's going to stop being a, a major presence but, you know, it's still early days and there's still time to, to ensure that, you know, I think what will be crucial is that when, especially once the campaign really gets going, that Eric Zemmour isn't just asked about these issues that he cares about. Like, you know, if he wants to be president of France, he needs to have answers for a whole slew of issues, whether it's, you know, how to continue reckoning with the ongoing pandemic and preventing future pandemics, um, you know, how to deal with the issues associated with climate change, um, you know, and then, of course, all the, the domestic issues, not to mention sort of foreign policy when it comes to relations with the United States, relations with more broadly with kind of European Union politics. I mean, there are so many issues beyond just this, which, which of course, isn't to, to say that any are more important than the other. But I think um, we would be making a big mistake as journalists if we only sort of focused on what Zamor wants to talk about and not about the litany of other issues that a French president would have to face. And so quickly to wrap up, you you started this by mentioning and, and reminding us that, one, we're very far out away from the actual election. Two, this is a theoretical presidential candidate who has lots of practical obstacles to him actually winning. So given all of that, I, I'm curious what you make of the biggest sort of takeaways from the Zemmour experience so far, right? Thinking about him less as you know, in any sense, a likely actual occupant of the presidential office, but more as like a phenomenon. What do you see as the biggest takeaways from from that from that perspective? I think what we should always be cognizant of, and certainly I think the lesson that we learned in the United States is that, you know, people love a spectacle. They're attention grabbing. They grab viewers. They drive conversations for days, if not weeks. I remember because I joined the Atlantic like a few months before the the 2016 election, um, you know, I remember kind of waking up and going to work in the morning and kind of thinking like, oh, well, what is he going to tweet today? Like kind of thinking that, you know, because that was all that, you know, it, I just remember that being such a a sort of conscious thought all the time because this was a time where it just really felt like Trump like every day was just saying something new that we had to pay attention to. And I think the biggest lesson is that like, you know, we know what what it means to turn someone into a political spectacle. I think the biggest lesson is probably that, you know, when it comes to dealing with Eric Zemmour, like it is dealing with any other potential candidate for the French presidency, you don't want to make them a spectacle. You want to make them exactly that, a potential candidate and treat them as such. And then the moment they become a candidate, then you start treating them as a candidate, whether that means affording them more airtime, more closely scrutinizing their sort of policies and, and promises. And yeah, just, I mean, treating him like, every other candidate, because at the moment, that really is all he is apart from his views. Um, and and that's what distinguishes him. But I think we want to be careful not to signal to audiences and to the French people that he is more deserving of their attention than any of the others, just because he's the loudest, most outrageous voice in the room. And that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week is Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Patihao. 
Your music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. If you like the Lawfare Podcast, you may consider checking out our other podcasts in the Lawfare Podcast Network. There's Rational Security, The Report, a narrative podcast series about the Mueller Report, and Lawfare Noble, a podcast feed in which we clip primary source audio from important events and strip out the grandstanding, the distractions, and leave you with what matters. Thanks, as always, for listening.